The Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast is a verse-by-verse study with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. These audio sessions were recorded over a three-year period during Shabbat services at Beit Hillel, located in Tacoma, Washington. We have finished the Beatitudes, and uh, at least Beatitudes proper, and we are now continuing in this uh, little bridge part in verses 13, 14, 15, and 16 are, is kind of a bridge to the next uh, teaching, uh, major teaching section, in which is 517 through chapter 7, actually, uh, part of chapter 7. So we read, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So we remember that in the Beatitudes, the first eight Beatitudes were directed, uh, blessed are those who, blessed are those, blessed are they. So third person. But the last Beatitude changed to blessed are you when uh, people insult you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely and so forth. And this second person, you, we suggested that Yeshua was talking generally to the crowd that he was teaching. And now, he, in the final beatitude, the ninth beatitude, he turns his attention just to the twelve. And I think that's the same thing that's going on in verses 13 and 14. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. He, he knows the status of those who are his followers. He knows their, their hearts, and so he makes these uh, claims. And uh, in that way, this fits as a bridge to the more formal teaching that will come in verses 17 and following. We may presume that in this verse and the ones following, Yeshua continues his instruction specifically to the twelve, the particular audience of the final beatitude. This is seen in that the second person pronoun, you, is utilized as it was in the final beatitude. Thus the Talmudim, or the disciples, are compared to salt and light, each of which have a profound influence on everything with which they come in contact. Those of you that grew up in the Midwest states where they salt the roads, uh, you know how much effect it has on your car. Every car you see out there is all rusted around the bottom and so forth from all the salt on the. And anyone who lives next to the ocean knows the same thing, right? I mean, if you live next to the ocean, things just rust like crazy. But Yeshua has moved from the perspective of blessing, that is the Beatitudes, to that of the responsibility to live righteously for those who would be his disciples. And the Beatitudes, the essential character or disposition of the righteous is highlighted, as well as the gifts or blessings that the Almighty gives to those who are righteous. In other words, blessed are the poor in spirit. It doesn't say blessed are those who become poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are gentle. Blessed are those who mourn. Um, you know, blessed are those who hunger. Blessed are the pure in heart. It's not, it's not admonishing someone to become that. It's saying, those of you that are this way, these are the attended blessings. 
Here, however, he moves to the responsibility. He urges his disciples to take up the task of righteous living. And thus, verses 13 through 16 form a kind of heading or bridge to the following section, which will describe in greater detail those who live as the Sermon on the Mount demands. There are synoptic uh, parallels to what we have, but they're not uh, exactly close. And it's it's not sure if... It looks to me like, and again, we, we struggle with, was Mark first? Did Matthew use Mark? Did Mark use Luke? You know, we, we struggle. We don't know. And not that it's a huge issue, but the differences sometimes are a bit profound, and you wonder, how did, they, how did these changes come about? Um, for instance, in Mark, uh, we read in uh, chapter 9, 49 through 50, For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? So it's the same idea that we have uh, in our verse. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Mark has taken the, the whole issue of salt kind of a step further and in a slightly different context. It's a metaphor for the final judgment as well as that of personal assessment and judgment in living righteously. Luke's parallel is closer to Matthew. And this is in chapter 14 of Luke. Therefore, salt is good, but even if salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So, you know, before we get into the minutiae of this, and it's really easy because there's a lot that's been written on, on this issue of salt. And how does salt lose its saltiness? I mean, we all know that that's impossible. Um, and so we'll talk more about that. But let's not lose the, 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 the forest for the trees. It's, it's real simple. If you eat food that isn't quite to your liking, you can add salt, right? I mean, it, it's really hard to take salt away from food that's been overly salted. But I mean, if, if something is a little bit bland, you can, you can add some salt. Okay. But what can you do to salt to make it salty? I mean, that's like ridiculous. If the salt isn't salty, what can you do? Nothing. And so, in, in the overall perspective, what he's saying is, if if you say that you're, if you claim to be the disciple of my disciple, Yeshua is saying, if you claim to be my, my disciple, and you don't have an effect on other people, that's like saying salt has lost its saltiness. That just you must not be. That must not be salt. Salt doesn't lose its saltiness. A city put up on a hill can't hide itself. You don't light a lamp and put it under a bushel. Those are all things that don't follow, that are ridiculous. It's just as ridiculous to think that someone could say he was a disciple of the Messiah and not be a wit- not, not witness of him. And I think that's the, that's the primary uh, issue that, that's going on here. Now, there's more to it than that, but I think we dare not lose that perspective, uh, that in, in the broadest strokes of things, Yeshua is saying it's natural, normal for a disciple to be a witness of his master. I don't think there's probably any of us who haven't been in a situation where we were afraid to be a witness for the Messiah. You know, the circumstances, whether it's at work, you know, when you... A new person comes on the shift and and they're just berating Christians and they're just they're just 
doing the the best job ever to make everybody who who has any kind of faith feel like they're the worst crawling creature on the earth. Well, you know, it's not your normal intention to go up to the person and say, oh, I, I just want to talk to you about about Yeshua and tell you about him. I mean, you kind of you know, shy away from that guy. It's natural. It's normal. So I'm not saying that um, any of us who haven't had uh, trepidation about opening our mouths for the Lord uh, have are therefore not his disciples. But what I'm saying is it is the natural thing for us to live our lives saying our master is worthy to be known. That's the normal life of a disciple. And uh, all too often, I think, particularly, you know, as as we, some of us uh, grew up in various uh, religious institutions, you had certain people who did that. You had certain people who were the, you know, they were the evangelists. They traveled all over the country and held these large uh, meetings where they evangelized. And that's that became kind of the way you evangelize. And that's clearly not what, what Yeshua was talking about. All right. Of course, the metaphor of the salt in Matthew also contains a general sense of judgment. For those who are the Talmudim of Yeshua function as salt, but all others are thrown out and trampled under the foot of men, which envisions the final judgment in which the unrighteous are condemned. Here Yeshua is not considering Israel to be the salt of the earth, but his true disciples. When he says, you are the salt of the earth, and by the way, the word you comes first in the sentence, as we'll see. So it's emphatic. You, almost you and none other. The others aren't. You are the salt of the earth. Moreover, the fact that his disciples are the salt of the earth, and the next phrase says, you are the light of the world. Here we have the, the, the Greek word geis, which could be land, but cosmos is, is much bigger than that. Cosmos is viewed as inhabited world, sometimes. Um, so the fact that his disciples are the salt of the earth may envision a wider influence than simply the confines of Israel. Though Yeshua's initial mission is to the lost sheep of Israel, he continues to indicate that his message and its effect would have a much wider audience. As the salt of the earth, the Gentiles are once again brought into the picture. Now, the paradox with the former Beatitudes is given stark contrast. The world is saved precisely by those it persecutes. Blessed are those who persecute you, or blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness' sake and so forth. But it's not clear how our master uses the metaphor of salt in this saying. Salt is used in the rabbinic literature as that which is essential for life. For instance, in the Mishnah it says the world cannot exist without salt. The use of salt in the scriptures and rabbinic literature provides a number of options for its understanding in our text. Salt was used as preservative for foods, as we know, particularly for meat and vegetables. Uh, salt would be rubbed into meat in order to keep it from uh, uh, decaying. And uh, it was also brine. You would have uh, cucumbers would soak in brine and be pickled and uh, other kinds of things like that. As a result, salt is used metaphorically in the sense of preserving something from decay or demise. In the uh, Talmud, Ketuvot 66b, it says, The salt of money is diminution. Others read benevolence. That's an interesting story. The daughter of somebody by the name of Nakdimon. Nakdimon is how you say Nicodemus in Hebrew. Uh, the daughter of Nakdimon comes and asks for money and uh, help from the rabbis. And the rabbis say, Your father was a very wealthy man. What happened to all his money? And she says, before he died, he gave it all to the poor. And they say, well, that, that was a great mitzvah, so here's money to help you. And then they say, 
this this uh, highlights the the truth that salt the salt of money that is the preservation of money is giving it away. When you give money away, that's how you hold on to it. If you try to hold on to it, it'll, it'll be taken away from you. So, but there, the idea of the salt of money means the preservation of money, or the, the way money is preserved is by benevolence, by giving it away. Well, I may, we may also note uh, in the Mishnah, so to 9.15, which speaks of the wisdom of the sages becoming putrefied, that is, spoiled as opposed to preserved. And the reason is, is because it's not salted. We'll note below it in Colossians 4.5, what does Paul say about our words? They should be what? Let your words be seasoned with salt. What does that mean? Well, that's preserved, maybe purified. Uh, the second is in connection with salt as a preservative. Leviticus 2.13 commands that salt be added to all of the grain offerings offered on the altar. This was to be symbolic of the enduring nature of God's covenant with Israel. Thus, the Tanakh speaks, thirdly, of the covenant of salt. The Davidic covenant is described as a covenant of salt, as is the Mosaic covenant of the Torah. In this same connotation, to eat salt with someone may describe mutual covenant membership. Thus, in Ezra 4.14, those who eat the salt of the palace cannot be witnesses against the king. In other words, you've entered into covenant. That's a way of saying you've entered into covenant. Salt was used for purification. In 2 Kings, Elisha performs a miracle in that he uses salt to purify bad drinking water. In a similar fashion, salt mixed with incense, according to Exodus 30, renders the mixture, quote, pure and holy. We may understand Mark 9.50 in this light. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another may mean have your hearts pure and so be at peace with one another. Similarly, Paul admonishes, as we said in Colossians 4, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, by which he may mean that one's speech should be purified or holy, and thus not with an admixture of senseless talk or coarse jesting, which is the parallel in Ephesians chapter 5. Now, fifthly, salt may have been used for medicinal purposes. We read in Ezekiel 16.4 that newborns were rubbed with salt. That, again, uh, piqued my interest, and so I did some research. I gave that to you over in the sidebar. Why did they do that? They believed that when you rubbed an infant's uh, skin with salt, and they, they, they would take the salt and, and make it powder, okay? They would put it in a mortar and pistol, and they would, they would make it powder. And they would powder the baby's skin with salt, and they believed that it made the skin uh, uh, hard or, or uh, impervious to rashes and other kinds of things. Well, maybe so. Who knows? Maybe they had less diaper rash. Uh, salt was, of course, used as a condiment for food as well. Job says, what do you do with bland food? Yeah, sprinkle some salt on it. I mean, they, uh, that's an obvious use of salt. So how, did, what is he, how is he using it here? <laughs> uh, you are the salt of the earth. Well, we could try to choose one of those, but I don't think it works. We should most likely presume that our master intended to let his metaphor of salt be multifaceted. The fact that you are the salt of the earth is parallel in the next verse to you are the light of the world shows that salt is to be taken in a very broad sense. That is, that which affects all substances to which it comes in contact. The message and person of Messiah is essential to spiritual life, even as salt is to one's physical existence. This is the primary point of the metaphor, that the witness of Messiah borne by the disciples would preserve, purify, heal, and bring to fruition the new covenant are all aspects of the salt metaphor. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it become salty again? <laughs> as I said, 
we know that sodium chloride is a stable compound is not transformed through dilution. I mean, it doesn't matter how much water you put on salt, you're still going to have salty water. Now, eventually, you might not be able to taste it because it's diluted. Okay, But what does he mean here? Many have noted salt, that salt in ancient Israel was generally obtained through evaporation pools at the edge of the Dead Sea, meaning that the salt which was gathered could be mixed with impurities, was, was indeed mixed with impurities. There were other substances that looked much like salt, but that were not salt, that were part of the uh, process when the water, they, would, they would dam up uh, uh, pools, let the sun evaporate the water out. What was left was this salty substance, but it had a lot of other things in it too. Carson notes that the salt would be more soluble than the other impurities, and therefore, if allowed to become wet, would lose its salty properties and leave the useless impurities. So if you had a, a bag of this salt that you got, and it's mixed with all kinds of impurities, if that bag got wet, the salt would dissolve first and leach out, and would be, you would be left with something that really didn't work very well as salt. That's maybe what he's talking about. This makes perfect sense with our master's teaching. The righteous life and message of the Talmudim was that which would affect the expansion of the kingdom of heaven. If, however, they allowed impurities to be mixed in, their effective witness for the master would be lost. Our English translation has, if the salt has become tasteless. The Greek word translated tasteless is moreno, which usually means to make foolish or to be foolish. We actually get our word moron from that. Luke has the same term, but Mark has analos to lose saltiness. Some have suggested that the difference between Matthew and Luke and Mark can be traced back to a Hebrew or Aramaic original of Matthew in which the Hebrew verb tafal was used and which can either mean unsavory, without taste, or foolish. It can mean both. Thus, the different words found in, in the two Gospels, Matthew and Luke, as opposed to Mark, may express the play on the word to fall itself, which could be understood both as foolish and as, quote, that which is insipid or that which loses its saltiness. One uh, scholar, Black, further uh, proposes that there was a play on the word taval, meaning to season. He says a further confirmation that the word tafal was original is that it gives a word play with the Aramaic for salted or seasoned, which is taval. So tafal and taval sound very much alike. So it's a little bit of a pun, a little bit of play on terms. Perhaps it's speculative. Whatever the case, the point is simply that in some manner, salt could lose its primary function as a substance to affect other things. And thus the analogy to the disciples is clear. Only in their faithfulness to Yeshua and his message of righteousness would they be enabled to fulfill their mission as his disciples. So then he asks, if the salt loses its saltiness or becomes tasteless <clears throat> or because of foolishness loses its power, if you wanted to use that metaphor, how can it be made salty again? The question on the lips of our master is rhetorical. Once salt has become so diluted through the admixture of impurities, there was no effective way to reclaim it, particularly if such dilution happened because the salt supply became wet. This sense that once salt has lost its saltiness, it is worthless, may also parallel Yeshua's use of other metaphors that teach the need for a new beginning. For instance, it, you, you can't put new wine in old wineskins. Why? Because you cannot rejuvenate an old wineskin. There's nothing you can do to make an old wineskin shrink back to its and have the elasticity that it originally had. Once it expands, it expands. Once it's old, it's old. It's, you can't use it again like it's new. 
Oh, a wineskin is a leg of an animal that's uh, the leather that's been uh, uh, tanned and prepared and then closed off at one end and wine goes in it and closed off at the other end. But it's, a, it's, a, it's still a semi-permeable membrane, so it's not, a, it's not like a glass bottle with a cork on the top. And they had those too, by the way. In an in agrarian society, uh, a wineskin was much more re- readily available than a glass bottle. And you could, you could use it over and over again. Of course, what happens when you put new wine? When you put grape juice into a wineskin, what happens? Well, it begins to ferment. And the fer- fermentation causes uh, the expulsion of gases. So the wineskin has to stretch. If you put new wine in a skin that stretches as far as it can, it's going to break. So you don't put new wine in old wineskins. Uh, he says the same thing. You don't put, uh, you don't put a new patch on an on an old piece of cloth. Why? Well, you put the new patch on, it just rips the new patch is strong, everything around it is weak. So, the same thing is true with salt. In other words, once it's lost its saltiness, it's, it's, it's not, it doesn't have any value anymore. If the current generation of Israel was to be the salt of the earth, but had become diluted through false teachers and even idolatry, then there was need for a new generation to return to its effectiveness as the bearers of God's truth. And I think that's what he's saying. To his disciples, you, you are the salt of the earth. You're the one that's. You are going to bring uh, the truth back to the lost sheep of Israel and eventually to the nations too. Of course, the supersessionists. You understand what I mean by that, right? Those who teach replacement theology, those who teach that the church has replaced Israel. The supersessionists of the emerging Christian church took this and other teachings of our Master to indicate the replacement of Israel by the church. Israel was the salt that had lost its savor. And the church, established by the apostles, was the new salt. It may be that the rabbinic literature contains a response to the church's use of Yeshua's words about salt. In um, Talmud uh, Bavli Bechorot 8b, we read, When salt becomes unsavory, wherewith is it salted? Now, does that sound familiar? <laughs> did, did Yeshua quote a proverb that the rabbis knew? Or here are the rabbis quoting Yeshua? Well, the Talmud's 300 to 500. They could have been quoting an earlier proverb. That's very probable. They did that regularly. But it's also possible that they're aware that Yeshua had made this teaching and that the church now, emerging in the 4th century, had used that teaching to say, Israel, you're worthless. You know, you're salt that's not salty anymore. You're worth nothing but to be thrown out and trampled you know, by men. So... One of the rabbis says, when salt becomes unsavory, wherewith is it salted? He replied, with the afterbirth of a mule. Now, you have to understand rabbi rabbinic thinking here. Because the next question is, and is there an afterbirth of a mule? No, mules are sterile. Okay, so the same way, the same way that a mule would never have an afterbirth, salt never loses its saltiness. That's the point. And can salt become unsavory? The answer is obviously No. So it sounds to me like that's a polemic against the Christian church and supersessionism. Like the church says Israel has lost out because Israel's no longer salty. And the rabbis are saying, wait a minute, salt never loses its saltiness. Your teacher didn't know what he was talking about. That's what it sounds like to me. If the saying of our master was being used in the Christian church as teaching the demise of Israel because she had lost her effectiveness, that is, her saltiness. And if the rabbinic saying was given in response to such a belief, then the point of the saying is that it is impossible for Israel to lose her saltiness because a mule is sterile and therefore has no afterbirth, meaning that the question, when salt becomes unsavory, wherewith is it salted, speaks of something that never could occur. 
Yeshua's point, if that, if he's using it as a proverb, however, Yeshua's point is that it has occurred and could do so again, but neither of these means the final end and replacement of Israel. Hey, guess what? All of his apostles were sons of Israel. He wasn't dealing with something other than Israel. All too often, the, particularly the Christian church in her history, looked at the, at, the, at the disciples as Christians. They were just good Jewish boys. You know, hard-working Jewish boys who had come to believe that Yeshua was indeed the Messiah. So they were as much Israel as anybody else. All right. It is no longer good for anything, Yeshua says, except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. This Luke, in his uh, parallel, says, It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Minerals harvested from the evaporation pools along the Dead Sea, if the salt content was low, could be plowed into the fields to give the soil nutrients. And they did that. Now, if the salt content was high, that was very bad for the ground. But if the salt content was low and had mostly minerals in it, particularly potassium and other minerals, which are found in the Dead Sea, it was good for the, it was good for the uh, land. It could be added to the manure pile and then used as fertilizer because it helped break down um, the manure so that it could be uh, absorbed more into the ground. But if the salt supply had entirely lost its saltiness, it was worthless. It was thrown into the street to be trodden under the feet of travelers. The point is that if Jesus' disciples are to act as a preservative in the world by conforming to kingdom norms, if they are called to be moral disinfectant in a world where moral standards are low, constantly changing, or non-existent, they can discharge this function only if they themselves retain their virtue. That's the bottom line of what he's saying. As I said, the language of being thrown out and trampled underfoot may well have judgment in mind. For Yeshua, there is no middle ground. Those who walk in righteousness are his disciples and accomplish the task to which they are commissioned. All others are judged. There's no carnal Christian doctrine in Yeshua's teaching. No carnal Christian doctrine. You know what I mean by carnal Christian doctrine? Some of us... Um, more or less grew up with that teaching. Uh, I didn't, but, but I know some who did. Yeah, the Campus Crusade would, would, and, and those who would uh, fall in line with that. The idea is that uh, somebody can be a Christian and live like the devil, but you know, as long as they've made the decision. It, it, there was a huge controversy that has gone on through the history of Christianity, and uh, it's it usually summed up under the Lordship Salvation title. Um, in other words... Many people believe that there are two phases to your salvation. One is when you receive, and I'm using the terminology that would normally be utilized. One is when you receive Jesus as your Savior. And another is when you confess him as your Lord or as your Master. Well, if you receive Jesus as your Savior, you're in. You don't have to worry about punishment and, and, and judgment and so forth. You're, you're in. But that doesn't mean your life has changed. Until, you're, until you receive him as Lord... You may still be living in that old carnal way that you used to live. And that you would be then called a carnal Christian. You're truly a Christian, but you're saved. You got your, you got your uh, insurance policy, uh, your fire insurance policy, but you're not really doing anything active for the Lord. Um, the, the charismatics, not all of them, but a good number of the charismatics add to that the, the second grace kind of thing where... At first, you receive Jesus as your Savior, and later you receive the outpouring of the Spirit. You you receive the filling of the Spirit, and that's when you 
receive him as Lord and make him Lord of your life and so forth and so on. Now, for some, in some groups, you can go in and out of those. You can, you can be a carnal Christian for a week and then you can be a spiritual Christian for a week and you can mess up and go back and be a carnal Christian for a couple months and then you can, you know, and, well, that, I don't know if that sounds foreign to some of you. I see some of you nodding your head, some of you with these kind of question marks like, somebody really teach this? Um, maybe some of you uh, think, well, I, that's, that's what I was always taught. I, that's what I believe. Yeah, maybe some of you. Okay. Huh? I, 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 heard this, uh, I heard this in the seminary that I was at, in the chapel. Speakers would come and, and talk, talk this way. I just don't find it anywhere in the Scriptures. I mean, sometimes we would almost think that Yeshua puts the mark too high. Like no one could have attained to, to the marks that he sets. I mean, I, I will have to say of myself, there's been times when my salt has been less than salty. When I've been willing to kind of meld into the corner for a day or an hour or ten minutes, maybe a minute and a half. And uh, <laughs> it's not my personality to meld into the corner, so I have to be careful. But um, um, that's more of a function of personality than it is of sanctification, maybe. But, I mean, um, we've all been in cases where afterwards we thought to ourselves, I wish I had been bolder. I wish I had had more, more faith and more chutzpah for the Lord. I wish I would have said... What, what was really on my heart and not just been quiet or, or even, even worse, uh, succumb to, the, to what I knew I shouldn't have said. Or what I sh- you know. So I'm not, I'm not talking about that. What I'm saying is that what is our overall life characteristic? How do people know us? Are they absolutely surprised when they find out that uh, we're believers? I mean, we've worked with this person for how many years and and then all of a sudden we show up at the same seminar somewhere and they go, Oh, what are you here for? It's like, You go oh, you believe in Jesus? Yeah. Oh, I would have never thought. You know, if if if, if that if that's what's going on, then um then, then we need to reassess. You know, really, who are we? Who are we? What is our occupation upon this earth? What are we here for? What has he saved us for? No. And the question is, uh, well, what, what about those who backslide? Look, all of us have had periods in our life where we were less than, than uh, enthusiastic for the Lord. Or uh, we, we may have had periods in our life where we were willingly engaging in sin that we shouldn't have engaged in. We know that. And it gave us a guilty conscience. No, I'm not saying that. But the, but the proof of our salvation is perseverance. The proof of our salvation is not a point in time when we raised our hand or signed a card or went forward. Now, that may have been genuine. That decision at that point may have been heartfelt and genuine, and it may have been the work of God in our lives. But we cannot rest our assurance on that. Okay? What the Scriptures consistently tell us is that the one who perseveres will be saved. So the question is, not have I sinned, but what have I done after I've sinned, have I come back and said, Lord, I, I repent of that. Forgive me of that. And help me to be strong and so forth. And you say, well, what period of time? Well, I'm not going to put any period of time on it. David was a man after God's own heart. If, if, if the prophet Natan hadn't come and pointed his finger at him, would he have repented? Well, we have to think that he would have. But it was at least a year, or close to a year, Right? Before he, before he made good on it. And um, 
so what, what, what was taking him so long? He knew when, when Natan said, you are the man. He didn't resist that. He said, you're right, I am. But it took somebody telling him that to bring him to, uh, to a, apparently to a sense of repentance. So what I would say, however, is that in those periods of backsliding, we do not have the assurance of our salvation that we otherwise would. Again, that the, I, uh, the question is if David had died before he repented. No, that, that, that's again not what I'm saying. That's in God's hands. That's typically the Roman Catholic view that if you get final communion or whatever at the absolution before you die, then you're in. If, you're, if you don't, then I think you're in trouble. I don't know Catholic doctrine real well, but I'm not saying that either. But what I'm saying, for instance, there was a gentleman this few years ago who came to me, was quite disturbed. Because uh, he, this was actually back in the print shop days, um, he had come in and uh, we were talking in the foyer. I don't know who it was. Several of us were engaging in theological discussion uh, during business hours. And he came in and he started, uh, uh, you know, saying, "Well, I, I go to church too." I said, "Oh, you know, great, good, whatever." And so um, later he came back. And we talked some more. And uh, he said that he had been, he'd gone through a, a divorce and he was now living with his girlfriend. And I told him, I said, well, you can't call yourself a follower of, of Jesus, of Yeshua, and live that way. The two don't go together. And he came back to me later and said, can't you give me some, some assurance that I'm a believer even though I'm, I know I'm sinning. I know I shouldn't be doing this. I'm sowing my wild oats. And at some point, I'm, I know I'm going to stop doing this and I'm going to come back to God. I said, well, you have no assurance of that. If you come back, it's only by God's grace. It's not anything that you're doing. Because if you're willfully out in sin, you have no assurance that you are born again by the Spirit. Because that's not the common life of one who's born again by the Spirit. Our assurance of true faith and true salvation is that our hearts long to, for righteousness, we're hungering and thirsting after righteousness, and that when we sin, we confess our sins and we seek to become right with God and with others. That is the, that, that constant coming back in confession, repentance, and perseverance is the proof that the Spirit is within us. So those who are willingly living in sin ought to be running scared. It ought to cause... But unfortunately, the teaching, as I said, in the Christian church is, well, that's kind of normal life. You know, you go up and you go down, you go in, you go out. That's, everybody does that. Don't worry about it. Uh, I don't say, I'm not saying they say don't worry about it, but it's almost the way that they... It's almost the way it comes across. And I think... Uh, no, I know that when the, the Scriptures say, if we willfully uh, sin... And we're not remorseful for it. We ought to be very concerned. If you say that you are born from above and you hate your brother, what are you? A liar. A liar. And the truth is not in you. That's what John says. So he, uh, he's using hatred of, of your brother as uh, maybe characteristic of the kinds of sins that should not be in the life of one who says he's born from above. This teaching is one of the 218 audio sessions found in the five-volume teaching series titled A Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew by Tim Haig from Tor Resource. This product is the fruit of over three years of studying and teaching through the Gospel of Matthew 
verse by verse and from a messianic perspective. The five-volume set is available in softcover book or digitally as PDF files. To order your copy today, visit TorahResource.com. Verses 14 and 15. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand and it gives light to all who are in the house. The second metaphor strengthens the idea that the salt metaphor was intended to evoke Israel's chosen mission as God's witness upon the earth. For the prophets regularly speak of Israel as a light. Isaiah 42.6 I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness, I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. 49.6 He says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. 60 verse 3, nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Those who have insight, Daniel says, will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven and those who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So, in the ears of those who were were familiar with, uh, very familiar with the Tanakh, when Yeshua says, you, disciples, you are the light of the world. He's using something that was said of the whole nation. And now he's, he's summarizing it or narrowing it down to, the, to his disciples. That's pretty... Those could be fighting words for the people who were listening if they were uh, not necessarily too prone to follow Yeshua. The rabbinic literature also uses the metaphor of light for teachers of truth as well as for Israel as worshiping nation. Rabbi Abahu arrived at the emperor's court from college. The ladies of the court went out to receive him and sang to him great... Man of thy people, leader of thy nation, lantern of light, thy coming is blessed with peace. In his last hours, Rabbanon Yochanan ben Sakai kept weeping out loud. O Master, his disciples exclaimed, O tall pillar, light of the world, mighty hammer, why are you weeping? And by the way, if you want to know why he was weeping, it's because he said he had learned more than any, he had studied more than any, he had understood the precepts more than any, he had even understood the deeper precepts more than any, and yet he had felt he had only scratched the surface of the Torah. So here he was weeping, saying, I'm not going to have any more days to study. Um, here's another uh, from the Talmud. Herod then said, I am Herod. Had I known that the rabbis were so circumspect, I should not have killed them. Now tell me what amends I can make. He replied, as you have extinguished the light of the world... For so the rabbis are called, as it is written, For the commandment is a light, and the Torah a lamp. Go now and attend to the light of the world, which is, which is the temple of which it is written, and all the nations become enlightened by it. And so what did Herod do? This is the Talmudic ex, uh, uh, explanation. What did Herod do? He expanded the temple like you wouldn't believe. He put, you know, he took this little temple mount and made it a huge, I mean, he, he made the temple bigger than it ever, ever, ever had been before in terms of the surrounding. And that the rabbis say he did that because he was remorseful for killing the previous rabbis. But anyway, the temple is a light. He says that here the rabbis are the light of the world. Jerusalem, according to Midrash Rabbah, is the light of the world. As it says, a nation shall walk, shall walk at your light. And who is the light of Jerusalem? God, as it is written, but the Lord shall be to you an everlasting light. 
With the words of the prophets as background, then it becomes clear that in claiming his Talmudim to be the light of the world, and here we have the word cosmos, which is a broader term than gase, which was used in the previous verse, Yeshua is making an emphatic statement. Israel as a nation had strayed from the truth and had lost her way. Only in returning to the message of the prophets and thus to the teachings of the Messiah they foretold would Israel once again be able to carry the light of the truth to the nations in calling his disciples the light of the world. Yeshua is not displacing Israel from her ordained role as God's chosen people, but calling Israel back to covenant faithfulness. Indeed, his disciples, each of them sons of Israel, were the beginning of the eschatological renewal promised by the prophets, for the light had come into the world in the arrival of the Messiah, and the Talmudim were to be witnesses of that light. It says a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Some have suggested that all through this passage, most, many, not most, but many commentators say Yeshua is setting aside Israel and starting a new people. The salt has lost its savor. We need new salt. The, the uh, city set on the hill is what? Jerusalem. We need a new city. Jerusalem has lost its light. I don't think that's what's happening. Jerusalem certainly is considered to be a light, a beacon. For instance, Pesikta de Rab uh, Kahana reads, Jerusalem is destined to be a beacon for the nations of the earth and they will walk in its light. However, the Greek in our verse lacks the article with the word city. It doesn't say the city set on a hill, and that we would expect to be the case if it was talking of Jerusalem. Rather, the metaphor is used to emphasize a main point. Those who are true disciples of the Master will be his witnesses. They can do nothing else. Even as a city situated upon a hill cannot be hidden, so the lives and message of the true disciples of Yeshua will inevitably shine forth. No one can be a secret disciple of the Master. For an essential aspect of being his disciple is to give witness to, to the one who he is, to who he is, and what he has taught. That's, the, that's what it means to be a disciple. You can't be a secret disciple. If you're secret, you're not a disciple. Now, I know, I've heard a lot of reports about, about rabbis in, in, the, in the old city and so forth who are secret believers. Well, I can't judge that, and I can't judge period of time. You know, maybe, maybe they're quiet for a certain period of time, and then they can no longer be quiet. I mean, I'm not going to judge that. But I'm saying that the general demeanor of a disciple of Yeshua is that he wants others to be disciples as well. That's his mission. That's his role. You can't do that silently. Maybe you have to do it, you know, in the, like in the former uh, Soviet Union, you have to do it with wisdom. You don't just stand out on the street with a loud horn and say, you know, I'm preaching for Jesus. You know, you'll get shut up in prison real fast. So maybe you have to do it in more of a, uh, a, a cloaked fashion. Yeah, more discreet. Okay, no problem. But um, this idea that one, I mean, this only comes from Western thinking. Okay, that your salvation is entirely uh, bound up with what you think. You know, Yeshua is, uh, and, and well, the whole, the whole Bible, but Yeshua particularly and his disciples, uh, his apostles, are very much taken up with the fact that salvation is, is found in what you do. Now, we shy away from that because we're, we don't want salvation by works, and we're not teaching salvation by works. But the proof of the pudding is in what you do, not in what you say. That's the reality of it. All right. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket. The basket is, by the way, a Greek word which actually is a Latin loan word, modios, which 
means a peck measure. It was originally just something to measure out a certain amount of grain, but it it, it eventually became something that was used to carry things as well. Just like, you know, I mean, I grew up with my mom always having a bushel basket around to take the washout in. Why is it called a bushel basket? Well, because it measured essentially a bushel of grain. Same thing going on here. This aspect of discipleship, that you can't be a hidden one, is made explicit as well in the lamp metaphor. The small terracotta oil lamp that was so commonly used in the time of Yeshua is surely what is envisioned here. And literally thousands, maybe tens of thousands, I don't know, um, have been found in, in Israel and so forth. The point of lighting it was to offer light to those in the house. No one would think of lighting the lamp and putting it under a basket or in some way obscuring its light. In the same way, discipleship has as its primary goal the dissemination of the Master's teaching both in word and deed. It is entirely incongruous then for anyone to claim to be his disciple but refuse or fail to give witness of him and to lead others to become his disciples as well. As we shall see, praying in one's closet is appropriate, right? He says, don't pray like the hypocrites where they go out in the square and make a big show of it. But rather, what does he say? The King James Version said closet. It means an inner room. Go to your inner room and pray in private, and your father who hears in private will reward you. Okay, it's fine to pray in private, but there's no such thing as a closet disciple. Yeshua will teach this as well in the parable of the talents. Talents are to produce talents. They are not to be hidden away. Obviously, Yeshua is training his Talmudim for their final mission, to make disciples of all the nations. It's one thing, you know, to go where you're familiar to go in your city, to go in your neighborhood, to make friends with your neighbor. It's, it's, it's just natural. To, you know, eventually things start talking. What do you guys do all day Saturday anyway? Oh, we, we, go, to, we go to synagogue and we spend time together. We pray. We, well, really, tell me about that. I mean, it, it becomes very natural. It's an entirely different thing to be the only white man in the heart of Monrovia, Liberia, and think to yourself, how could I tell these people about Yeshua? And that's, that's a whole other thing. You know, and, and the disciples were going to be called upon to go into hostile territory. Places where they didn't really like the Jews. And try to, to talk to them about a Jewish Messiah? I mean, can you, you think it's difficult to talk to our Christian brothers and sisters about a Torah way of life? Whoa. I mean, Judaism as it was known in the first century was so different and so uh, other than the pagan religions that they encountered that you would have to think it's impossible. And you know what? It was. It was impossible. Except for the power of the Spirit. Except for what God intended to do. And, of course, He's been doing that in every generation, right? He has been opening the hearts of those who otherwise would be blinded and he has been making them ready for the gospel. And that brings us to verse 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now Yeshua drives his teaching home to the Talmudim. The light they have received is to be shown forth to others with the result that they too will glorify the Father. In the Greek, our verse begins with hutos, which gives the sense in the same way. And in the margin, I note, I like the NIV translation. In the same way, let your light shine before men. It links it back to the previous verse. You can't have a city sitting on a hill and have it not seen. You, can't light a, you, won't, you don't light a lamp and put it underneath the, the, the bushel. In the same way, 
shine your light. The way the NASB has it is a little bit ambiguous. Let your light shine before men in such a way. That kind of it doesn't link it to the previous verse as tightly as the Greek clearly does. The Talmudim of Yeshua are to walk and talk in such a manner that the attention of others will be arrested and drawn to the truth of the Father who is in heaven. You know, if you're if you're in the dark and you're walking in the dark and all of a sudden you see somebody with a light, I mean, they can be a long ways away and you see that light. It grabs your attention. We may note several important aspects of this concluding verse. First, the light is that of disciples, of the disciples. Let your light shine before men. The message and life to which we are to give witness is our life and message. It belongs to us because we have been given new life through faith in the Messiah. In other words, when we witness, when we shine this light, we're not, talk, we're not relating something that, that's, that belongs to somebody else. Let your light shine. It is what has happened to you and to me. It is something that's real for us. Granted, the light we have is given to us, not something we have produced. But we give witness of a life transformed through God's gracious and miraculous work. We are witnesses of what we personally know to be true. Moody responded to those who were not so certain that they believed his, uh, his view that one could truly know they were saved. And I asked him, Dr. Moody, how do you know for sure that you're saved? And his answer was very simple. I was there when it happened. So th- th- it, was that, it was that personal aspect that, that is important. Secondly, our light is to shine before men. The Greek word is anthropoi, anthropos. This could just as well be understood as mankind. Let your light shine before mankind. It includes people of every category, Jew and non-Jew alike. While Yeshua's initial instructions to his Talmudim was to go only to the lost sheep of Israel, his teaching here envisions the final commission in which discipleship among the nations is enjoined. God is the sovereign who has chosen those who will be saved. We, however, are to give witness of the Master to all without discrimination. For we are privileged to be his workers by whom those from every tribe and tongue and people and nation will be redeemed. You can't say, well, you know, that person looks like a likely, likely candidate and that one doesn't look like a likely candidate. Um, we'll talk more about that. But Unfortunately, the, the whole idea of letting your light shine has been modeled by many, not by all. I'm, I'm, maybe I'm painting in too broad of a stroke here, but by many has been modeled after a sales school. You know, I, some of us have been through sales school. At one level or another. You know, I almost got roped into selling Southwestern books. Uh, I don't know if any of you know about that, but a lot of guys in my college sold Southwestern. And uh, boy, you know, the first meeting you got there and they said, okay, every morning when you get up, this is what you got to say. I feel good. I feel great. I feel terrific. Now repeat after me. I, you know, they'd have, they had you say this time and time again. And then they gave you these sales pitches. And, you know, they worked. There were guys, there were guys in my dorm that came back after a summer of selling Southwestern. They made 8000 9000 bucks. That's more than I made working 40 hours a week at a hard job somewhere. You know, so it was a little bit, it was a little enticing, you know. And you had openings. You had two, three, four openings. <coughs> And you had uh, some what they call lead-ons after your openings. And then you had three or four closings 
And you, you could tell by what questions they ask and how they answer the questions and so forth, which one to use and how to get them, you know. Where you want, and what did you want them to, what was the goal after you knocked on the door? For them to sign the contract and write the check, the first check. Because that's how you made your money. Well, unfortunately, evangelism in our day has followed that model. I have, I have, I have actually been in seminars where they taught you openings, where they taught you lead-ons, and where they taught you closings to get somebody saved. That's ridiculous. It's worse than ridiculous. It's huckstering the gospel. And uh, that's not what to do. Thirdly, the light that Yeshua's disciples shine forth consists of good works. Doesn't that, doesn't that, isn't that stunning? Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your, your what? Ma'aseh ha-Torah. That's what it would be in the Hebrew. Your deeds of Torah. It is your good works that they see. It is through living the mitzvot that Yeshua's disciples give witness to the glory of the Father. Yeshua's, I'm not negating speaking. We have, this verse is not comprehensive uh, 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 text on evangelism. But I think it's foundational. We are to give witness. We are to speak the words. We are to share the good news and say it. But it is based upon what we do. It is through living the mitzvot that Yeshua's disciples give witness to the glory of the Father. Yeshua's perspective on evangelism is therefore mitzvot-driven. Only in a Western perspective could anyone conclude that witnessing means handing out tracts. That could never have come up, uh, uh, into the mind of, of someone in the time of Yeshua. Ever. Because the goal was not to get you to say yes. What was the goal? To get you to glorify the Father who is in heaven. That was the goal. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works. And what will be the result of that? That they will glorify your Father who is in heaven. Not that they will say yes and join your church. Not that there is anything necessarily wrong with disseminating the truth in written form. I hope there's nothing wrong with that. I tend to do a bit of it myself. But to think that this is the primary mode of witness is to disregard our Master's words. He demands lifestyle evangelism, a lifestyle that demonstrates to a watching world that his mitzvot bespeak his glory, honor, and wisdom. This is the very message of the Torah itself, which we had in our Torah portion this last Shabbat. So keep and do them, that is, the commandments. For that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it, as is the Lord our God whenever we call on Him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole Torah, which I am setting before you today? What are the peoples stunned at when they see, about when they see Israel? If Israel's keeping the Torah, they say, wow. Number one, your God is in your midst. Number two, this is so wise. This is so beautiful. This makes your community what it's supposed to be. Why in the world would any thinking person want to join a group of people whose divorce rate is higher than their own? Something's not right. If you say, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, come and join us. We have answers for all your problems. And then you come in and you say, guess what? You guys have more problems than I do. It's the mitzvot. It's the doing of good deeds. Genuine. Humbly. That draws uh, attention. Fourthly, the result of people seeing the mitzvot is that they glorify your fathers in heaven. This is precisely what Moses taught Israel. If Israel would keep the Torah and live it out in faithfulness before the nations, then the nations would surely admit that Israel's God is both unique and greater than all the other gods. There was a, a Talmudic story. I, I didn't include this. But I, I should have, maybe in the margin or something, I just didn't have time. 
Rabbi Eliezer bought a donkey from an Ishmaelite. Uh, an Ishmaelite would be an Arab, right? Okay. And and when he brought the donkey to to the yeshiva, the students were excited because around the donkey's neck was this very costly uh, stone on a on a string. And they said uh, they said to their um, to their master, uh, God rewards the righteous. In other words, you bought this donkey and you got this extra gift. And he he said, uh, I bought a donkey. I didn't buy a jewel. And so he took the jewel off and took it back and gave it to the Arab. And what did the Arab say? The Arab said, Surely your God is in your midst and your statutes and your mitzvot are wise. You know, exactly quoting the Deuteronomy text. As an illustration, see see what happens when you keep the mitzvot? They say, whoa, that's amazing. And they give glory to your God. This is the ultimate goal, that God's name should be sanctified, set apart upon the earth, that he should receive the glory that he deserves as the creator and benevolent king of the universe. Likewise, in the disciples' prayer, the opening request is that God's name should be hallowed or seen as holy. Note also that the Father is referred to as your Father who is in heaven. The mitzvot which characterize the lives of Yeshua's Talmudim are done in the context of covenant family relationship with the Almighty. They are not carried out begrudgingly as the unreasonable demands of a distant potentate, but are the willing and joyful response of children to their father, who has called them into covenant relationship with himself and each other. Thus Yeshua teaches, My father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Bear much fruit is another way of saying, do good works. And Peter writes, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Fifthly, the result of this lifestyle evangelism as envisioned and commanded by our Master is that others will glorify your Father who is in heaven. How does one glorify God? The answer is that they begin to live out the good works as well. This in no way suggests salvation by uh, works. Rather, it means that people are so struck by the validity and truth of the life they see in Yeshua's disciples that they desire the same for themselves. I think one of the, one of the greatest uh, evangelistic aspects of our own synagogue has been when people come and see our children. I don't know how many times I've heard visitors say, you know, service was great, music was okay, a little loud. And... Uh, um, and, and uh, you know, teaching was good, you know. But what I was really impressed with was your kids. Yeah, well, that's the way it should be. That's the way it should be. They recognize that apart from a relationship with God by which they could invoke him as father, they have missed the very purpose for which they have been created. They desire the same relationship with the Almighty that they see lived out by Yeshua's Talmudim. They are drawn to a life of righteousness, not to a creed or to an association within some religious organization. This is one of the reasons why the Christian church has been so ineffective in terms of reaching Jewish people. The, the, uh, the divorce rate, for instance, among the Orthodox is about 5 or 6%. Among evangelical Christian churches, it's up in the 30s. Among Christianity across the board, it's, it's in, in the mid-50s. So if we say Yeshua is the Messiah and this is the true faith and this brings about good deeds and this brings about righteous living, then where is it? That's, that's you know, amongst other things, that's what I've heard. Surely, this single teaching of our Master does not tell the whole story of evangelism, nor does it fully develop the whole scope of rebirth through the work of the Spirit connection with the good news. And I know people who have been saved by tracks. I mean, God has used a track. Uh, I remember as a young boy, a guy stopped by our house, or maybe it was his 
maybe it was he and his wife, I can't remember, but he told the story about how he came to faith in the Messiah. And he said, you know, he was this belligerent, foul-mouthed, don't-talk-to-me-about-religion kind of a guy. And there was this guy at his work that kept trying to talk to him about Jesus, kept trying to talk to him about Jesus, and he just kept telling him, don't even mention it, I don't want to hear anything about it. And the guy would constantly put tracks in his pocket of his coat. It, just, it would just fry him. It would just make him so mad. And one day he read one of them, and the Lord used it. You know, so I'm not saying that God, I'm not putting God in a box by any shake of the imagination. He's, that's impossible to do at any rate. But what I'm saying is this verse gives us a general picture. And it does describe the ultimate goal, that of glorifying God as the very purpose of life itself. That is the heart of evangelism. Not to get people to say yes to Jesus. The heart of evangelism is to bring people to give glory to God in their lives. This brief description of our master of effective evangelism stands in remarkable contrast to the vast majority of what is usually labeled evangelism in our day. Developed after the sales model of our modern world, many approach evangelism as a means of making the sale, which means getting people to agree to a set of religious axioms. Maybe just one. Sign on this line. Evangelism classes teach openings and closes, just like any good sales school does. Success is reached when the person being evangelized prays the sinner's prayer. But this is a far cry from what we hear from Yeshua as the mandate for his Talmudim. The light that they shine forth is first and foremost a light that emanates from their doing the mitzvot and which bespeaks an enduring covenant relationship with their Father in heaven. It therefore emphasizes the need to make disciples not merely to bring someone to say yes to a minimal number of religious truths. We may also note how this emphasis upon doing good works, the mitzvot, moves logically to the next paragraph in which Yeshua outlines his perspective toward the Torah itself. Since the light that he demands of his disciples is that which comes forth from their doing good works, the accusation that he was teaching the abolition of the Torah must be corrected. Far from abolishing the Torah and the prophets, Yeshua came to make the mitzvot shine forth from his disciples. For our master, effective evangelism and living in obedience to the Torah go hand in hand. It's, uh, you know, we cannot be judgmental. We don't know. We have no idea. Um, there may be someone that we would think, oh boy, they're, you know, they're, they're doing this, they're part of this group, they don't believe this, they believe that. You know, ultimately the final judgment's in God's hands. We don't know the hearts of others. We can judge their actions. We can say your actions are not consistent with someone who's born from above. We have the right to say that because the scriptures tell us to. But I am uh, I'm always puzzled by the verse we're going to come to in Matthew 7. Many will say in that day, many will say in that day, did we not do this and this and this and this? And these aren't the people that have just said no uh, to, to God. These are not the people that have rejected the message apparently. These are the people who seem to have accepted it. At least they thought they had. And they sound surprised when, when, when they're not allowed in. So, but wait a minute. They argue with him. Didn't we do this and this and this and this and this? He's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. You know, how is that? How is that possible? It's possible because I believe that, that there are and probably have been in, in many generations, maybe in all generations, I don't know, those who just were given a false message about what God wants. And they believed that false message, and as a result of that false message, they, they didn't believe the truth. Now, you'll say, well, that's not fair. If they were given the bad information and they believed it, well, you know what? 
when uh, when you read the directions wrong and you put antifreeze in the crankcase, your 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 engine still does mess up. Okay, you you might have read the directions wrong, but <laughs> guess what? It still ruins your engine. Okay, sure. Even if they had bad information, they they sh they had the scriptures. Ultimately, God will not lose any that are His. Right? Yeshua said, not one will be taken out of His hand. So the number that no man can number of every tribe, kindred, and tongue will, in fact, stand before the throne. We know that for certain. That's God's doing, not ours. But we are His servants, and we're to give the message, and we're to give it as clearly and purely as we possibly can. And the message is not a sales message. You know, you can say to somebody, you don't have to do anything. God's just giving you this free gift. That's true. That's part of the good news. And here's another part of the good news. If you accept Him, you have to give Him everything. It doesn't cost you anything. It costs you everything. Okay? You don't pay for your salvation. But if you want salvation, He becomes your boss. And you willingly submit to Him. That means everything. That means the whole life. And that's, that part of it usually isn't emphasized. Or uh, another part that's usually not emphasized is the fact that there is a, uh, you, you have no need for a physician until you figure out that you're sick. You know, if you don't think, you say, well, yeah, I'm, I'm not doing well. I should be progressing in my work and I'm not. Or I, I'm, I'm, out of, I'm unemployed and I haven't been able to get a job forever and I need some help. You know, or, you know, I have a hard, I have an anger problem. I need to get over this anger problem. Well, there's all kinds of, uh, there's all kinds of medicines that are offered by, uh, by our society for psychological and emotional kinds of uh, problems. But, you know, um, if we present Yeshua as, as the uh, medicine for all the problems, and we, and by the way, he is the medicine for all the problems, okay? But if we don't give the whole message, you know, repent, repent. Salvation is first and foremost for him, not for us. It's for his glory. So that your Father might be glorified in heaven. And I think we've watered down the gospel. I really do. Right. Well, uh, the comments being made about uh, God's having chosen or his elective decree that, is, that becomes uh, uh, an issue in this whole aspect of salvation. Uh, a key issue. Uh, for some, it's very disconcerting uh, because they were brought up in, in maybe other traditions. Uh, I think... You know, for me, it is a very comforting reality. I don't understand it. We can't figure it out. Um, we couldn't figure out why. I think the biggest mystery is why he would want to choose any of us. You know, you know to me, that's the, that's, that's the bigger mystery, uh, why he would love us at all. I mean, it seems to me that he would have, you know, given my perspective, I would have just wadded the whole thing up and started over. You know, or maybe created people that wouldn't have sinned. Or, I mean, you know, there's all kinds of philosophical uh, uh, issues here. But we take the Scriptures at face value, and the Scriptures indicate to us that God has chosen those whom he will save and that he will not be thwarted, that he will not stop from the full salvation of those that he has chosen, and he will bring them to, to himself. Um, and uh, Yeshua made that secure. And so we... We live in the reality of that. There's uh, incongruities that we can't put together. But you're right. Uh, the, the doctrines of that, that, that those who teach that one can be saved one minute and not saved the next do so because they in some manner believe that their salvation is dependent upon themselves. And so, you know, if you add to your salvation, you can also take away from it. That's, that makes sense. Uh, I think the scriptures teach that salvation is entirely of the Lord and that uh, he has graciously 
uh, brought us to himself. It doesn't mean that we're puppets. In his sovereignty, he has allowed us the ability to choose, and yet he has worked in such a way that our choice coincides with his. Yeah. So those of us that are in love and have been in love understand that a little bit. Uh, as I've said over and over again, I thought I was pretty much in control of the of the relationship that I had with my now my wife before we were married, and after I looked back, I realized I wasn't in control at all. Um, you know, I couldn't have resisted her for anything. I mean, there, there's no way I could have walked away. It was just, that was impossible. She was just reeling me in. You know, she had that hook and she was just reeling me in. And uh, and and in the same way, you know, when we come to the Lord, we have the sense that we're seeking Him, we're pursuing Him, we're looking for Him, we want Him, we make the decision. We say yes. And when it's all over, we realize that all the way along he was, you know, opening this door and guiding us this way and and bringing us right to the place that he wanted through the circumstances and so forth. So and so, you know, Paul basically ends up saying it's a mystery. And um, for for of him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. That's where Paul ends up after he talks about this whole issue of, uh, of the choosing and uh, of the elective work of God. He admits, too, you know, that we can't understand it. All right. So, as salt and light, the Talmudim of Yeshua have been given both the ability and responsibility to take up the challenge given to Israel of old to be a light to the nations. Matthew's universalism is once again emphasized for though the initial mission is to the lost sheep of Israel, the ultimate goal is that all of the nations of the earth shall come, should come to the light and acknowledge Israel's God to be the one true and only God. This is what the Messiah intends to accomplish, and he has commissioned his disciples to be his servants, by which the ancient promise to Abraham would come to fruition. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds. Your mitzvot and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You've been listening to the Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew podcast with Torah Resource President and Instructor Tim Haig. If you like this teaching and want to hear more, please visit us at TorahResource.com. Join us again next week as Tim takes us through another verse-by-verse lesson in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew.